Thank you, choir. And greeting. Greeting, least that's the heading to this first part of the book of Romans. And this is a letter of Paul to the Romans. It's chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And the title of this section is Greetings. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all of those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is his greeting. Good morning, everyone. If you are new to EP or this is your first Sunday, my name is Bruce O'Neill and I'm the pastor. And this is a good Sunday to come because we began a new series of messages this morning. We finished Exodus last week and this week we pick up the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans. And so if you are unfamiliar much with uh, Christianity, uh, Paul might be well-known and Romans might be known. And so we're going to spend the next number of months. I don't exactly know how long. I just know it's longer than Exodus. That we'll be walking through the letter to the Romans. The subject matter of the letter to the Romans is the gospel And one of the things that I have noticed over the years about the gospel is that it's a lot like a diamond, that if you turn it, you see a different facet every time you turn it. And so I'm not saying that the gospel's complex. I I really don't think it's complex. I think it's quite simple. But because it is so beautiful, it has so many aspects and facets to it that Paul is going to address uh, for us as we walk through this letter together. I think one of the facets that has been most endearing to me, the most moving, has been this idea of being adopted into the family of God. If you're a new to EP, you might not know that I, I didn't grow up in an intact, uh, a functional home. And so when I was 16, I left home. And I remember daydreaming a lot about finding a home. And though at 16, I, I moved in with some, some friends for a couple of years till I finished high school, uh, it was a safe place. It just wasn't home. And so I didn't belong to anyone or anywhere at that time. And it wasn't until I was in college, because I didn't grow up in the church, it wasn't until I was in college that somebody sat down and shared the gospel with me. You can imagine living in the United States and, and not hearing the gospel until you're in your uh, 20s, but that's what happened. And I can remember of all the parts that uh, Paul Slay was the name of the guy who shared the gospel with me, as he was sharing the gospel, the part that I resonated the most with was when he, he talked about that Jesus uh, lived here on earth in order to bring us into the family of God. And there was this one passage that he shared that 
I really love. And it's out of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is one of the Old Testament books that was written when Israel, the people of Israel, were in exile in Babylon about them coming home one day. And, and so this passage is a, is a quotation of God's communication to those people who were longing for a place to belong. And so he says this, As for your birth, on the day in which you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out on the open field. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. You were naked and bare when I passed by and saw you. I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord your God. And you became mine. I don't know where you were when you first heard the gospel, and I don't know the circumstances uh, for you, but one of the beauties of the stories that we did in January and February and the beginning of March was to show you the multifacetedness of the gospel. This morning, I, I just want us, as we begin our study of the letter to the Romans by the Apostle Paul, to begin to hear his introduction, not so much an introduction of himself, He's never been to Rome, not when this letter was written. He didn't know very many people there, but he was obviously introducing himself, but he's doing more than introducing himself. He's introducing them to the gospel. And so I want to invite you on this journey into the gospel. One of my very favorite C.S. Lewis book in the Chronicles of Narnia, the last book is called The Last Battle. And it has a scene where the children who began all this journey through Narnia arriving to the new Narnia. And when they get to new Narnia, this new place that represents heaven and earth, the new heaven and the new earth, they run into a unicorn named Jewel and, and Jewel uh, begins to show them around. And then he says, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. And then he invites the the children to come further up and further in. And so this morning, I want to invite you, no matter where you are in the processing of the gospel, whether you've heard it or not heard it, whether you believe it or not believe it, I invite you to come further up and further in to the gospel. Some of you are at the entrance to this message of the gospel and you haven't yet come in because you don't know if it's safe yet. You don't know if you belong there. Others of you, you've come into the room. You've begun to believe the gospel, but you've got questions and doubts and concerns about what it means. And still others of you have been in the room in the gospel for years, if not decades. I invite all of you, no matter where you are, all of us, to come further up and further into the gospel. And as an introduction, I want to, I want to give you a sentence, I want to give you a concept, I want to give you a, an outline in your head, and then I want to break it apart. 
In the first seven verses, Paul makes this statement between all of these verses, and I'm just going to put them all together. Paul's opening idea is that this letter is about the gospel of God. It is about the gospel of God, which is about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that this gospel purpose is to bring about the obedience that comes from faith among all the nations. I think that's an important statement. If we can get our minds around that, then the rest of the letter is going to make a lot of sense to us. And without understanding that, I I just think we're going to see Romans as a disjointed collection of ideas. But I think Paul is trying to communicate the gospel that has been entrusted to him, that he's a steward of, that he's been set apart to bring to the nations is a gospel that doesn't originate him and it originates with God and that he's going to take it to the nations because it's about Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ has done. And that as a result, there'll be an obedience that comes from that faith. With that in mind, let me bring it apart. In verse one, Paul says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. And so the very first thing is that the Romans is a letter about the gospel of God, even though it is written by a man whose life and work has defined him by this gospel. Paul says he's a slave to the Savior. Paul says that because I believe, I now serve. He says, I'm an apostle, which don't, don't think too much of that. It just literally means one who has been sent. And Paul is saying that I'm a slave to Christ, but I have been sent. This is my duty. This is my responsibility as a servant of Christ to take the gospel. And then he says that I have been set apart to proclaim that gospel to the nations. That is, Paul has been willing to be separated from his family and friends. We know this because if you lay out the 13 letters of Paul, we can see this in his life. He's been separated from family and friends in in Tarsus and in Jerusalem. He's also been separated from personal wealth that he could have accrued over time, from acclaim, from safety, security. Why? In order to bring the gospel to the nations. And though Paul is identified by the gospel, he does not define the gospel. Paul is defined by the gospel, but Paul does not define the gospel. The gospel doesn't originate with Paul, it originates with God. Paul is a steward of the gospel. He's been entrusted with the gospel, but it doesn't start with him and it doesn't depend on him. And therefore, for all of us, the gospel doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. Well, then what, you might ask, is the gospel. The word that is translated gospel throughout Romans is the word euangelion. It's a Greek word that literally means good news or better, good herald, to say something that is good. It comes from not from the New Testament, the word euangelion was around before the New Testament was written, certainly before Romans was written. It was used by Romans and Greeks. Whenever there's a new king, whenever 
a, a new ruler came to power, he would gather messengers and say, I need you to go out into my empire and tell them that I'm the new king, that I rule my kingdom and that they are to act in accord with that new reality. And so in the Roman Empire, in the beginning, when uh, Caesar and Augustus becomes king, the Roman Empire, though it seemed huge, was not that huge. It's, uh, it's going to be under Claudius and, and uh, subsequent rulers that it'll stretch from Britain all the way uh, past Palestine into Syria, almost all the way to India. And so when, a, when, when an emperor would come, he would say, it's time for a euangelion. It's time for me to send my messengers to the four corners of my kingdom to let them know that I now rule. That's what Paul uses when he says, I have this message that I have been sent by God as an apostle set apart from everyone else to take a message that there is a new king. One who is Lord of Lords, and king of kings, whose reign is to go over the entire cosmos. One of the things I I love about Abraham Kuyper, who was the prime minister of the Netherlands uh, back in the early part of the 20th century, he has this beautiful phrase when he became prime minister of the Netherlands. He said, I look over the Netherlands If I am God and I say every square inch is mine. That's the announcement that Paul says is good news. That there is a new king. His name is Jesus Christ. And he looks at the world and says every square inch is mine. That's what Paul says is the gospel. And therefore it's an announcement. It's not an argument. It's a declaration that Jesus is Lord. And therefore, it's not advice for Christians to follow. It's not a rule book. It's not a Boy Scout manual. It's news we are to believe and to bring our lives into conformity with this good news. And so Paul is a messenger of it. In fact, you could say in one way, Paul is the original evangelical. You know, sometimes I wish you could uh, listen in on the conversation sometimes uh, on the phone. When somebody who's not familiar with EP and, and our name, they won't use EP, they'll try their best to say evangelical. We make it really hard on people. Not only can they not pronounce Presbyterian, but they really struggle with evangelical. And so it goes... <laughs> What? It's because we don't use the word evangelical much in our culture. The only time it's really ever used is by politician is in its pejorative. But what it originally meant were those who herald the good news. Those who are messengers to the four corners of the earth to say that there's a new king. Jesus is Lord. And so you can ask, Who is this king? 
And we are told in verse 2 that this gospel was promised by God beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And so the first thing I want you to notice about this gospel is that it's not really new. It's news, but it's not new news. Because all of the Scriptures, all of the Old Testament pointed forward to this gospel message. Because Jesus is the seed of Genesis. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law in Deuteronomy. Jesus is the redeemer of Exodus. Jesus is the high priest of Leviticus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law out of Deuteronomy, the faithful one in Numbers. He's the promised land in Joshua. He's the deliverer in Judges. He's the kinsman redeemer in Ruth. He's the true king of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. He's the true prophet of all the prophets of the Old Testament. He's the subject of the Psalms. He's the wisdom of Proverbs and he's the lover of the Song of Solomon. And the point that Paul is making here is simply that the Old Testament writers are the scaffold that Paul stands upon in which he preaches the gospel to the nations. But not only is the gospel not new news, It's not even a what. The gospel is a who. Verse 3, the gospel is about God's son, Jesus Christ. The content of the gospel is the announcement of a king. Yes, he comes to do something, but he's not just a king. He says that he's God's son. He's a person. Until we grasp that the gospel is about a who and not a what, we will never get the gospel. The gospel is specifically about what that who accomplished to save his people. The gospel is not about what we must do. It is about what has already been done. Verse four, he was declared to the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Therefore, the gospel is a declaration. I know we want to turn it into an argument. We want to turn it into a proof text so that people would believe, but it's not any of those things. The gospel simply is a herald of what, of who and what Jesus has already accomplished for us to make us his own. That he's going to make all things new. But to what end? What, what's the purpose of the gospel? That's what verse five tells us. The gospel is is to bring about the obedience of faith. I know we don't know what that means. It seems so foreign to talk about obedience and faith in the same breath. And Paul's going to take literally the next 16 chapters to explain what he means by obedience of faith. Because in the benediction, the last good word that Paul gives in chapter 16 is about this obedience of faith. And you're going to say, Jesus brought this obedience of faith that I've been talking about for He wouldn't say 16 chapters because they were added a thousand years later. But the point is, is that from from, uh, chapter one all the way through chapter 16, Paul's going to explain what obedience of faith means. And so instead of just letting that go, let me just briefly talk about what obedience of faith means. Let me tell you, first of all, what it doesn't mean. It means that it doesn't mean that our obedience is grounds for our salvation, our acceptance with the Lord. Paul's not saying we are saved by faith and obedience. It's not an obedience with faith or an obedience to faith. It's an obedience of faith. Now, I'll be the last person on earth that will try to be a grammatician for you. 
Listen to me long enough and you'll know that English is a foreign language for me. But let me tell you one rule of Greek grammar. They have different kinds of uh, genitives, which is a kind of speech. This is a preposition. Obedience of faith, that of is important. It is a genitive of possession, which means that the noun that precedes it belongs to the noun that follows. In this case, the obedience belongs to the faith. Another way to say it is that the obedience that we're talking about is produced by the faith of what we believe. Faith precedes the obedience. Faith produces this obedience. Obedience then is a result of God's acceptance of the believer. Because we believe in our hearts, we respond with gratitude with our lives. This kind of obedience then is joyful. And our disobedience then is sorrowful. When it's the reverse When our obedience is sorrowful and our disobedience is joyful, that's why we need the gospel. Verse 5 goes on and says, To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, among whom? All the nations. Remember, Paul has never been to Rome, at least not before this letter was written because that's why he writes the letter. He wants to come. He longs to be there. He wants to come and, and, and be with the people in Rome and meet them, particularly the Christians that are there. Well, why does he want to go? Why does he want to show up in Rome? We know because something that, that, that Doug Rao didn't read to you down in verse 15, he tells you why he wants to come. He says in 15, he says, I'm eager to show up in order to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Why does Paul want to preach the gospel to Roman Christians and to the people outside the church? It's because Rome is part of God's prize. It's it's part of whomever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10, Paul wants to go to Rome because he believes there are people in Rome who have not heard the gospel, that once they hear the gospel, they will believe. And when they believe, they'll call upon the name of the Lord. And when they call upon the name of the Lord, they'll be saved and they'll be added to the church. Paul believes there's ministry there. And so he wants to preach the gospel there. But not only there. In chapter 15, he's going to say, hey, guys, I want to come and preach the gospel to you. But when I'm done there, I want you to take up a collection because I want to go where the gospel is not. He says, I've been everywhere in Asia Minor and the gospel is known. I want to go where nobody's heard the gospel, Spain. Can you take up a collection in Rome so that I don't have to make a living while I'm preaching the gospel, I can take your money and, and go to Spain and preach the gospel there. So he's, he's intending on coming, but only for a while till he can go on to the mission field again. In Genesis chapters 12, 15, 17, and 22, it's a recording of God's promise to Abraham. And the promise to Abraham is, hey, I'm going to bless you. You're going to be something for me. But many people have thought that that means promises just to Abraham and his little old family, which is going to be Isaac here soon. 
But no, God's not saying, hey, this blessing is just for your little family. Nor is he saying, this is this blessing's for your little nation that's going to come from you, Israel. Though eventually Isaac's going to have Jacob and Jacob's going to have uh, uh, all these kids and, and they're going to have the nation of Israel, but that's too small a prize for God. It's all of the nations. Every kind of human being you can imagine. Every pe- tribe, people, and we know that because literally when John is given a vision of the new heavens and the new earth, he sees people from every tribe, people, and tongue. People who have never heard the gospel are going to hear the gospel. They're going to call upon the name of the Lord and they're going to be saved and they're going to be in that number. The way that, that, that God puts it in Genesis chapter 15, he says, Abraham, I'm going to, I'm going to bless you. And your descendants, your children are going to be like the sand on the seashore and the stars in the heavens. Go try to count them. There's too many of them. He says, you are going to be a blessing to the nations. And and when we hear nations, we hear borders. and, And literally it means every kind of people, even within borders. And you would say, well, then what is Rome? Rome's part of the prize. Look at verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Rome is the greatest city in the world when this letter was written. It's the seed where, where Caesar lives. The whole empire is ran from this city, Rome. And God has put his church there in Rome. And eventually historians... One historian in the ancient world said, there are Christians everywhere in Rome, everywhere but the Senate, including Caesar's household. Can you imagine? Most scholars believe that at the time of the writing of of Romans, there's only 100 believers in the city of Rome. 100 at the most. They're meeting in little house churches. We'll talk about that next week because there's no place that they could meet without being persecuted, except in homes, which in the homes, they might be able to put 20 or 30 people. So they're in a bunch of homes. And so their mind is thinking, well, who are we? We're, we're so small. We're so insignificant. They keep confusing us with the Jews and we're Christians. And, and people in Rome hated Jews. And, and, and so they're being persecuted. And, and, and then Paul writes them and says, but you're loved by God. Can you imagine I feel so insignificant, unattached, nowhere to belong, not safe. And the message is to me is that God sees me. He knows me. He has made me his own. He says, you've been set apart. They probably feel set apart. But what does that mean? Then Paul uses this double greeting. Part of it is Jewish and part of it is Gentile. And he brings them together and uses them in all 13 of his letters. Same phrase, grace and peace. The the Hebrew one is peace. Typically heard as shalom. And they don't mean peace in in the sense of may may life be copacetic. May you be laid back and no uh, uh, ruffled feathers. May akuna matata. That's not what a Jewish person means by shalom. Shalom literally means wholeness, healing. The reason it's important is because typically after two Jewish people get together and and they end up uh, laying out all the things that are going wrong in the world, whether it's the government or the persecution or simply 
For eight years, Jews got kicked out of Jerusalem. They just came back right before this letter was written. A lot to complain about. They could be complaining about their employers or their employees. They could be complaining about their family. The last thing another Jew who listened to your complaints would say to you as he's leaving you is shalom. May God heal you. May God bring healing to our world. May God bring healing to your family, to your place of employment. May God make it the way it was originally designed. That's what they mean by shalom. That's what Paul means as he sends this letter and all 13 letters to the church. May God restore what is broken about our world, the way it was originally designed. And then he mixes a, a Greek greeting that often you would see in Greek writings, grace. And the word grace literally meant in Greek, unmerited favor. So what Paul is doing is linking these two ideas together. May God make you whole the way God designed you to be. May the world be made new again, not by your effort, but by God's effort. May God do this on his own without our help. May God bring healing to our land not by protest or writing letters to the governor or, 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 or picking up a sword, but simply by grace. May God do this. That's why another way to, to take this phrase is not peace and grace or grace and peace, but peace through grace. Peace by grace. Did you see Annapolis in this opening seven verses? It's there. It's in verse six, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Obviously he means all Christians everywhere, but that also includes here. To all of you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, grace and peace. Like I said, most scholars estimate there are around a hundred Christians in Rome when this letter arrived. Annapolis has thousands of Christians. If God can capture a city in 300 years with less than 100 believers, imagine what he could do in our city. What he could do here in Annapolis. Annapolis is God's prize too. He looks at Annapolis and says, every square inch of it is mine. There are many here who have never heard the gospel. That's hard to believe in America that you could live and never hear the gospel. That does not mean they haven't heard about Jesus was. Most Americans have heard that Jesus was. But very few Christians, I mean, non-Christians, non-church people have ever heard that Jesus is. One of the greatest lines that Job utters after all of the suffering, after all of the losses, He says, my redeemer lives. The message of the gospel is not that we have a dead king, but that our redeemer lives. And he says, every square inch of our city is his. And every human being here needs to hear the gospel. We are stewards. We are apostles with a little a to take the gospel that our Lord lives and reigns over this world. And we want shalom by grace to come to our city 
into our world. How? How's that ever going to happen? Paul already anticipates that question. In chapter 10, he says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord is going to be saved. How then will they call upon the name of the Lord of whom they do not believe? How are they ever going to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they going to hear without someone preaching? And how are they going to preach unless they are sent? Paul is saying the only way the people of our city are ever going to hear this good news, this herald, is if we are sent. If we go and tell our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and our and fellow students about a king who's alive and rules and is going to make all things new and make everything the way it was originally meant to be, even though it's all broken now. I love how Paul ends that passage when he begins to say, you know what's really beautiful? Do you know how to define beauty according to the gospel? Look at the feet of those who bring good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, who bring the gospel. Are we praying for our city? Every square inch belongs to him. From... from those beautiful yachts that are in Ego Alley, I find that ironic. All the way into the housing neighborhoods that are government uh, subsidized f- for people to live in. To the, to the Naval Academy, to the hospital, to NSA, to where the Secret Service learn how to do their job, where the police department operates in the fire department, every square inch, none of that belongs to this world. It all belongs to Jesus Christ, our King. Are we heralding the gospel to the people of Annapolis? If we don't, how will they ever call upon the name of the Lord? And are we seeing to bring about the obedience that comes from faith here and around the world. Those are the really the questions of Romans. It's not just so that you can have a good handle on the book of Romans. In case you're in Central Park and somebody asks you, I'm going to kill you unless you can give me an outline of the book of Romans. What a waste of your time. You are the apostles of God. You have been sent with the only message of hope that this world that is hopeless will ever hear. Blessed are your feet. Beautiful are your feet because you bring that good news. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the people of EP and the people of your, our sister churches and daughter churches and, and friends who believe in you, who have been called and set apart, loved by you to bring good news. We love our city. We love what you have done here. We just pray that you make it new. That every square inch is yours and you make it known through us as we herald your gospel 
that people who have not heard about Jesus Christ, your son, might hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.